Volume One, Chapter Four of Diana Temple by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Four. After the red pottage comes the exceeding bitter cry. Fifteen years is a long time. What companies of trite reflections crowd the mind as it looks back across the marshes and the fens and the highlands and the lowlands and the weary desert places to some point that catches the eye in the middle distance. We stood there once, perhaps we go back in memory, all the way back, to that little town and spire in the green country, and pray once again in the cool, vision-haunted church, and peer up once again at the window in the narrow street, where love lived and looked out, where patience and affection dwell together now. They were always friends, those two. Or perhaps we look back to a parting of the ways which did not seem to be a parting at the time, and recall a good-bye that was lightly uttered because it was only thought to be au revoir. We see now, from where we stand, the point where the paths diverged. Fifteen years. They have not passed very smoothly over the head of Colonel Tempest. Whenever he looked back across the breezy uplands of his well-spent life, his eye avoided, and yet was inevitably attracted, with a loathing allurement to one dark spot in the middle distance where, fifteen years ago, or yesterday, was it? The old nightmare, with the shuddering horror of yesterday, mingled with the heavy pressure of years, might come back at any moment, was always coming back. That sultry night in June. Everything was disjointed and fragmentary in his memory the morning after it. He could not see the whole. He had a confused recollection of an intense, passionate hatred that was like a physical pain, and a swain's voice saying, "'What's a little boy?' And then there were slips of paper. Swain said a bet was a bet. He, Colonel Tempest, had had something to do with those slips of paper. What? One had fallen on the floor, and Swain had blotted it carefully. There was Swain's voice again. "'Your handwriting ain't up to much, Colonel.' He had written something, then. What was it? His own name? Memory failed. Who was that devil in the room with Swain's face and blurred watch-chain, two watch-chains, and the thick, busy hands? And then it was night, and he was in the streets again in the hot darkness, among the blinking lamps and stars that looked like eyes, and Swain was seeing him home. And there was a horror over everything. Horror leant over him at night. Horror woke him in the morning and pursued him throughout the day, and the next day, and the next. What had he done? tried to piece together the broken fragments that his broken memory could glean. But nothing came of it, at least nothing he could believe. But Swain knew. On the third day he could bear it no longer, and he went to find him. But Swain had disappeared. Colonel Tempest went up to his chambers on the pretense of a letter, of something, he knew not what. They were swept and garnished in readiness for new arrivals, for if one choice spirit disappears, a good landlady knows what to expect. Colonel Tempest looked once round the room, and then sat feebly down. It was as if for days he had been staring at a blank sheet, and now a dark slide had been suddenly taken from the magic lantern. The picture was before him in all its tawdry distinctness. He knew what he had done. Colonel Tempest was not a radically bad man. Who is? but there was in him a kind of weakness of fibre which consists in being subservient to the impulse of the moment. 
the effects of a feeble yielding to impulse are sometimes hardly to be distinguished from those of the most deliberate and thorough-paced sin. He was conscious of good in himself, of a refined dislike to coarseness and vice even when he dabbled in it, of vague longings after better things, of amiable, even chivalrous, inclinations towards others, especially towards women not of his own family. In his own family, where there had always been, even in his mother's time, some feminine weakness or imperfection for a manly nature to point out and ridicule, of course courtesy and tenderness could not be expected of him. Thus, at each juncture of his life, he was obliged to justify what he would have called his failings, what some would have called sins, by laying the blame on others, and by this means to account for the glaring discrepancy between the inward and spiritual gracefulness of his feelings and the outward and visible signs of his actions. A man with such good impulses, such an affectionate nature, cannot be a sinner. If there was one thing more than anything that Colonel Tempest thoroughly believed in, it was in his affectionate nature. He might have his faults, he was wont to say, but his heart was in the right place. If things went amiss, the fault was in the circumstance, in the temptation, in the unfortunate character of those with whom his life was knit. Weakness has its superstition, and superstition its scapegoat. His father had spoilt him, his wife had not understood him, his brother had played him false, Swain had tempted him. What have not those to answer for who teach us in language, however spiritual, however orthodox, to lay our sins on others, or any other except ourselves? After the first shock of panic, of terror, lest he had done something for which he might eventually have to suffer, Colonel Tempest struggled back to the well-worn position, now clutched with both hands, that he had been betrayed in a moment of passion by a fiend in human shape, and that, if anything happened, Swain was the most to blame. Still, they were dreadful days at first, dreadful weeks in which he suffered for Swain's sin. And Swain seemed to have disappeared for good, or perhaps for evil. And then gradually, inasmuch as nothing had power to affect him for long together, the horror lightened. The sun rose and set, the world went on. A year passed. Archie wrote for money from school. Things took their usual course. Colonel Tempest had his hair cut as usual. He observed with keen regret that it was thinning at the top. Life settled back into its old groove. Nothing happened. To persons gifted with imagination, what is more solemn or more appalling than the pause which follows on any decisive action which is perceived to have within it the seed of a result? a result which even now is germinating in darkness, is growing towards the light, foreseen but unknown. With what body will they come, we ask ourselves, these slow results that spring from the dust of our spent actions? Faith sows and waits, sin sows and trembles. The fool sows and forgets. Colonel Tempest was practically an atheist. He did not believe in cause and effect. He believed in chance. He had sown, but perhaps nothing would come up. He had seen the lightning, but perhaps the thunder might not follow after all. Suddenly, one winter morning without warning, it growled on the horizon. "'That inconvenient little nephew of yours has precious nearly hooked it,' said a man in the club to him as he came in. "'His tutor must be a plucky chap. I should owe him a grudge if I were you.' The man held out the paper to him. 
and turning away with a laugh, went out whistling. He meant no harm, but the smallest arrow of a refined pleasantry can prick if it happens to come between the joints of the harness. Colonel Tempest felt seasick. The room was empty except for the waiter who was arranging his breakfast on one of the tables by the window. The fire leapt and blazed. Everything swayed. He sat down mechanically in his accustomed place, still clutching the paper. He tried to read it, to find the place, but he could see nothing. At last he poured out a cup of coffee and drank it, and then tried again. There it was. Narrow escape of Mr. Goodwin and Mr. Tempest on the Metropolitan Railway. Mr. Goodwin and his charge, Mr. Tempest, were returning by the last train from the Crystal Palace. Tremendous cloud on the platform. Struggle for the train as it came in. Mr. Tempest pushed down between the still-moving train and the platform. Heroic devotion of Mr. Goodwin. Rescue of Mr. Tempest uninjured. Serious injuries of Mr. Goodwin. Colonel Tempest read no more. He wiped his forehead. Swain's when, but their devil's work, then. Perhaps they had tried before and failed, and he had not heard of it. They would try again, presently. Perhaps next time they would succeed. The old horror woke up again with an acuteness that for the moment seemed greater than he could bear. Weak men should abstain from wrongdoing. They cannot stand the brunt of their own actions. The kick of the gun is too much for them. And from that time to this the horror never wholly left him. If it slumbered, it was only to reawaken. At long intervals incidents happened, sometimes of the most trifling description, and some of which he did not even hear of at the time, which roused it afresh. There seemed to be a fate against John at Eton, which followed him to Oxford. Archie, who was at Eton and Oxford with him, occasionally let things drop by chance, which made Aunt Colonel Tempest's blood run cold. They failed so far, he would say to himself, but they will do it yet. I know they will do it in the end. At last he made a desperate attempt to find Swain and cancel the bet. But perhaps Swain knew the man he had had to deal with, and had foreseen a movement of that kind. At any rate, he was not to be discovered. Colonel Tempest found himself helpless. Was there no anodyne for this recurring agony? He dared not drown it in drink. What might he not say under its influence? The consolations of religion, or rather of the Church, which he had always understood to be a sort of mental chloroform for uneasy consciences, did not seem to meet his case. The thought of John's danger never troubled him, John's possible death. The superstitious terror was for himself alone. He wanted a religion which would adhere to him of its own accord, and be in the way when needed and he tried various kinds recommended for the purpose, but without effect. Perhaps a religion for self-centred people remains to be invented. Even religiosity, the patent medicine of the spiritual life of the age, the universal painkiller, even religiosity, though it meets almost all requirements, does not quite fill that gap. Colonel Tempest became subject to long attacks of nervous irritation and depression. He ceased to be a good, and consequently a popular, companion. His health, never strong, always abused, began to waver. At fifty-five he looked thin and aged. He had come before his time to the evil days and the years which have no pleasure in them. As he turned out of St. George's Church, Hanover Square, on this particular spring afternoon, whither he had gone to assist at a certain fashionable wedding, 
of which his daughter Diana had officiated as bridesmaid, he looked broken down and feeble beyond his years. A broad-shouldered, dark man elbowed his way through the throng of footmen and spectators, and came up with him. "'Are you not going back to the house?' he asked. "'No,' said Colonel Tempest. "'I hate weddings. I, I hate the whole thing. I only went to have a look at my child, who was bridesmaid. Di is my only daughter, but I don't see much of her. Others take care of that.' His tone was pathetic. He had gradually come to believe that his child had been wrested from him by Mrs. Courtney, and that he was a defrauded parent. "'I'm not going to the house, either,' said John Tempest. Or it was he. "'I don't hate weddings, but I detest that one. Do you mind coming down to my club? I've not seen you ready to speak to since I came back. I want to have a talk with you about Archie. He seems to have been improving the shining hours during these three years I've been away.' Colonel Tempest winced jealously. He knew John had paid the considerable debts that Archie had contrived to amass, not only during the short time he was at Oxford, before he left to cram for the army, but also at Sandhurst. But Colonel Tempest had felt no gratitude on that score. Was not all John's wealth Archie's by right? And John must know it. Men do not grow up in ignorance of such a fact as a slur on their parentage. What was a dole of a few hundred pounds now and again, when a man was wrongfully keeping possession of many thousands? "'Young men are all alike,' said Colonel Tempest testily. "'Archie is no worse than the rest. Poor fellow, is very little I can do for him. It's deuced expensive looking in the guards. I find it so myself.' John might have asked, except that these are precisely the questions that make enmity between relations, why Colonel Tempest had put him in the guards considering that it was an idle life, and Archie was absolutely without expectations of any description. He and his sister died not even the modest fortune of a younger son eventually to divide between them. One of the beauty of Colonel Tempest's romantic clandestine marriage had been the lack of settlements, which, though it had prevented his wife bringing him in anything owing to the rupture with her family, had at any rate enabled him to whittle away his own private fortune at will, and to inveigh at the same time against the miserliness of the Courtenays, who ought, of course, to have provided for his children. How Colonel Tempest kept going at all, no one knew. How Archie was kept going, most people knew, or rather guessed, without difficulty. John and Archie had held firmly together at Eton, and afterwards at Oxford. John had untied a very uncomfortable knot that had arranged itself round the innocent Archibald at Sandhurst. It could hardly be said that there was friendship between the two, but John, though only one year his cousin senior, had taken the position of elder brother from the first, and had stood by Archie on occasions when that choice, but expensive, spirit needed a good deal of standing by. Archie had inherited other things from his father besides his perfect profile, and knew as well as most men which side his bread was buttered. They were friends in the ordinary acceptance of that misused term. John had just returned from three years' absence at the Russian and Austrian courts, and Archie, who had begun to feel his absence irksome in the extreme, had welcomed him back with effusion. "'Come into the Carlton and let us talk things over,' said John. In spite of himself, Colonel Tempest occasionally almost liked John, even while he kicked against the pricks of a certain respect which he could not entirely smother for this grave, quiet man of few words. When he was not for the moment jealous of him, and there were such moments, 
he could afford to indulge a sentiment almost of regret for him. At times he still hated him with the perfect hatred of the injurer for the injured. But nothing to stir that latent superstitious horror and consequent detestation of the cause of the horror had occurred of late years. They had walked slowly down Bond Street and St. James's Street, and had reached the Carlton. Close by the steps a man was lounging. Colonel Tempest saw him look attentively at John as they came up, and the blood left his heart. It was Swain. In a moment the horror was awake again, wide awake, hydra-headed, close at hand, insupportable. Swain stared for a moment full at Colonel Tempest, and then turned away and sauntered slowly along Pall Mall. "'Won't you come in?' said John, as his companion hesitated. "'Not to-day, another time,' said Colonel Tempest, and incoherently making he knew not what excuse, he left John to join another man who was entering at that moment, and hurried after Swain. He overtook him as he passed through the gates into St. James's Park. It was a dull, foggy afternoon, and there were not many people about. Swain nodded carelessly to him as he joined him. He evidently did not mind being overtaken. "'Well, Colonel,' he said in the half-insolent manner that in men like Swain implies a knowledge that they have got the whip-hand. Swain was not to be outshone in the art of grovelling by any of his own species of fellow-worm, but he did not grovel unnecessarily. His higher nature was that of a bully. "'Damn you, Swain! Where have you been all these years?' said Colonel Tempest hurriedly. "'I've tried to find you over and over again.' "'I'll be busy, Colonel,' returned Mr. Swain, swaying himself on tight, light-checked legs, and pushing back his grey high hat. "'Business before pleasure, that's my motto. And I'll be mortal sick, too. Thought I should have gone up this time last year. I did, indeed. You look the worse for wear, too. But I must not be standing talking here, pleasant as it is to meet old friends.' "'Look here, Swain,' said Colonel Tempest, in great agitation, laying a spasmodic clutch on Swain's arm. I can't stand it any longer. I can't indeed. It's wearing me into my grave. I want you to cancel the bet. You must cancel it. I won't bear it. If you won't cancel it, I won't pay up with the, if the time comes. Won't you? said Swain, with contempt. I know better. I must get out of it. It's killing me, repeated Colonel Tempest, ignoring Swain's last remark. Pay up, then, said Swain. If you won't bear it, pay up. Colonel Tempest was staggered. "'I have not a thousand pounds I could lay my hands on,' he said hoarsely. "'Much less ten. I've been broke these last five years, you know that.' "'Raise it,' said Swain. "'I ain't against that. Quite the reverse. There's been a deal of time and money wasted already. All the parties would be glad to have the money down. He's in England again now, thank the Lord. That's a saving of expense. I was waiting to have a look at him myself when you came up. I've never set eyes on him before.' "'I can't raise it,' said Colonel Tempest, with the despairing remembrance of repeated failures in that direction. "'I can't give security for five hundred. "'If you can't pay it and you can't raise it,' said Swain, shaking off Colonel Tempest's hand and thrusting his own into his pockets, "'what's the good of talking? "'Sorry not to part friends, Colonel, but what's done is done. "'You can't send back shoes to the maker that have come to pinch on wearing them. "'You should have thought of that before. "'Business is business, and a bet's a bet.' End of Volume 1 Chapter 4